Hi, I'm Michael. I own multiple small businesses. I am self-entertained by my own improv shows, Fitmanic, Way Insecure, and Extremely Neurotic. I am a TV host and your host right now for what we call the Second Scene Podcast. It's a Dweebs Global production where we interview people you know about the things that they're not necessarily known for. I'm here today with W.A. Fulkerson. He is an award-winning screenwriter, author, and storyteller. His latest book is For Whom the Sun Sings, but whose second scene is as a wrestling coach and Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioner. Did I get all that right? Yeah, sounded right to me. Thanks for having me on the show, Michael. No problem, no problem. Welcome. Thank you for, thank you for coming. Um, do I refer to you as W.A. or Wesley uh, or... Yeah, just uh, Wes or Wesley is fine. Yeah. You know, when uh, your name is Wesley Fulkerson, that doesn't fit on the front of, uh, you know, anything. So other methods have been devised. Gotcha. Gotcha. I like that. I like that WA. I like the way that Thanks. looks. In a fit of optimism and also trying to creatively solve the fitting on the cover problem. You know, I started writing professionally about eight years ago. So WA Fulkerson, because we thought that sounded really literary and uh, everybody and their brother does it these days. So just another one of those initial writer guys. Yeah, it looks the, it, it looks very official. It feels cool. official. All right. It, yeah, it feels like it's supposed <laughs> to be there. I'm going to start simple. So where are you from? I'm from San Diego. And believe it or not, I'm actually a fifth generation San Diegan. Uh, my children are sixth, which is about as old San Diego is. Um, that's on my dad's side and my mom's side. It wasn't that long ago. They came over from Greece. But um, yeah, so we've got pretty deep roots here in San Diego, lived in LA for a few years, uh, several years ago, and uh, loving life down here, man. Okay, I mean, no matter where anyone lives, being fifth or sixth generation is pretty unheard of. Yeah, crazy, <laughs> right? Don't last one too. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah. That's wild. <laughs> so is your, is your family like known in the area? Is there any uh, plaques anywhere with their names on it? And uh sort of actually yeah you know my uh my grandfather on my mom's side was a pretty prominent judge um they had a day named after him down here for a while which was sort of cool he was real involved in a lot of boards and, and city stuff and uh, on my dad's side a couple of generations ago they were they were theater owners down in downtown san diego the palmer family and uh they did a bunch of neat stuff down there so kind of yes kind of no i got you how do you how do you lose the day you had a day what happened <laughs> I think uh, when they do a proclamation for this is this individual's day, I think most of the time it's just that one year. I don't think it's observed again and again, unless okay. you discover America or, or cure cancer or something. Okay. Uh, it was the day because he was, he was a well-known judge. It was a. Uh... Yeah. It was to uh, thank for his, uh, his work in the judicial system and also, you know, his, uh, all his community efforts. Like I said, he, he sat on numerous boards throughout the course of his life, started a lot of, community programs and things like that. Got you, got you. That's probably yeah. pretty interesting to go back and read through everything that he's done. It sounds yeah. like he's probably shaped the area. Yeah, the population wasn't so great. Yeah, he's the one who taught me how to write. His name was uh, Judge Roll Cantos, really neat guy. Okay, very cool. Uh, so you have a family now, you married, you have kids? Yeah, two of them, one of each. My uh, oldest is going to be two and a half next month and our Youngest is a uh, three-month-old, beautiful baby girl. So, got you, got you. So yeah. sleep is out the window, and uh, you're just getting yeah. rid of it. <laughs> you know, it's actually not too bad though. We uh, we have what uh, 
people affectionately refer to as sturdy babies. My uh, son was nine pounds when he was born. My daughter was 10. And uh, big babies sleep. So it's actually not so bad. That's nice. I, I'd never heard that before, but I guess. Yeah, sturdy. <laughs> big people sleep a lot too. Sturdy and, and big people sleep a lot too. So it's, uh, I guess that comes to the territory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're a big reader. So what's your advice to raising them to be big readers? I'm asking you this as a personal note, because I have 10 and eight year old boys and oh, I'm great. trying to instill, I'm cool. trying to instill the love of books in them. Cause I was, I was never introduced to it much as a kid. I wasn't, I wasn't yeah. a big reader. I'm a big audible guy, but I want something different for them. So. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of it probably just depends on life stages, you know? I mean, at, at this point it's, it's basically brainwashing, <laughs> you know, you read with them a lot and they just learn to, uh, to like books. My two year old loves books, but you know, ever since he, uh, ever since he was born, you know, I'd, I'd read to him pretty much every day. Um, so I think a lot of it's just imprinting, but as they get older, you know, I know when I was a kid, uh, my mom was on a mission to brainwash the love of books into me as well. And, um, she would use them as a reward. So she would figure out what kind of things that I liked. And instead of, Hey, we'll go get a meal that you like, or buy you an ice cream cone or whatever. Uh, she would buy us books when we did something well, you get to pick a book, you know, and so that was big for us because we got to look forward to, uh, to reading was like a treat. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. Um, so you're, you've written a, a lot of books. You've written 14 books. Yeah. Something like that. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I do it's a lot. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, it's what I do. You know, I, um, I ghostwrite, uh, that accounts for maybe a third of those. Um, I, I write a little bit of nonfiction here and there, but uh, I love writing. I love writing fiction, specifically fantasy novels, like uh, the most recent release through Enclave uh, from the Sun Sings. That's my favorite. Okay, uh, how's go how's ghostwriting? To me, it sounds like I could, I could, uh, I could write things I normally wouldn't write as myself, but I, I'm sure that's not the case, or or is it? It's uh, it is a roller coaster. <laughs> Um, you know, it, it just depends on your client. Sometimes it is so easy and, and fun and great and a breeze. And with some clients, it's just endless revisions and endless change in their minds. You know, um, for some of your listeners who might not be familiar, I know a lot of times when I talk about it, not everyone really knows what ghostwriting is. Uh, a lot of people who have their name on the front cover of a book did not write it, um, especially, you know, political figures or, or athletes, things like that. They have an actual writer writing for them. So, uh, I get hired to write books for people sometimes, but, uh, yeah, it just okay. depends on the book. It depends on the client. Do you have to, do you have to keep all that a secret who you've written the books for? It depends on the contract. Uh, most of the time in my experience, no, but then again, you know, I, I've never written a book for an ex president or something. So it, uh, it depends how much clout you have. It depends how much clout a client has. Um, if you ever see with and then an author's name on the front of a book after the main author, the second guy's the one who wrote the book. So uh, I've gotten the with designation a couple of times and a couple of times my name hasn't been in it at all. It just depends. Gotcha. I guess you're not doing those for the glory. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's Purely in it for the money. Do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, just kidding. It's uh, it always teaches you a lot, uh, you know, working with different people and, one of the reasons I love being a writer is you get to dive into uh, a research topic and just get obsessed with something for a while, you know, and I love that. And ghostwriting, uh, when I do it, lets me get involved in a, an area of the world that I wouldn't normally look into. And I like that about it. Is there one that sticks out for you in particular that 
that you really enjoyed researching and getting into? Man, yeah, we, uh, we're in the process of uh, putting out a book right now um, by a, a gentleman named Marcel Becker, who was a very, very prominent uh, outlaw biker uh, in his youth. He was prosecuted under the Kingpin statutes, five-time felon, had an entire multi-agency uh, uh, team dedicated to bringing him down, just to give you some perspective. And uh, this guy is the most incredible story of turning his life around. And so, um, yeah, that, that book's still a little while from hitting the market, but uh, they're going to call it free at last. It's pretty neat. I'm excited about that one. That sounds very interesting. What was the, what was the, re what was the, the researching process like, especially for, for something like that? Yeah, first and foremost, it was a lot of interviews with him. You know, a lot of uh, running the tape and sitting down and saying, tell me about your life. Tell me about this aspect. I want to know about your family. Tell me about prison. Tell me about, you know, uh, this and that, you know, uh, over the course of months, I got to know him really, really well, which was neat because he's a great guy. But uh, other than that, it looked like going down rabbit trails to understand the picture fully. So listening to podcast series on how the FBI came into being, doing a lot of research on how the prison system works, how uh, outlaw motorcycle gangs work we're not allowed to say the particular gangs he was a part of for some very good reasons but um yeah it was a lot of tangential sort of rabbit trail things that help you understand the world so you can write about it fluently got you I, the visual aspects of the world i'd imagine come into play heavily um uh, i'm assuming you have to study that and then when you're writing yeah. it uh just to give the description because I, I anything that happens at a different time is hard to imagine yeah, absolutely. And that was a lot of our talks. You know, once we have the main story down, I would tell him, you know, I, I need you to put me there. I need you to tell me what it looks like, what you remember, what it smelled like. You know, we've got to make the reader feel like they're there with you. So definitely, it's a big part of it. How do you stay organized through that? I, I find myself, I'm on Evernote one day, I'm on my iPhone notes yeah. another, I'm using my voice memos. Um, <laughs> yeah, pointers there. I uh, am at least as disorganized as you in one sense then. <laughs> I think we all are. Uh, you know, I, uh, I'm always fond of saying creativity is messy, even if good books aren't. And so I've given up trying to be organized all the time, but for me, it's a big funnel system, right? So at every stage of the process, I care more about being organized. So at the beginning when it's brainstorming, I'm the same way as you, I've got voice memos on my phone. I've got, you know, little notes, uh, scratched, you know, on the sticky notes on my desk and in notebooks and all over the place. But uh, then as we start doing interviews and I have an outline, it begins to look more like something a human being could, uh, could possibly decipher. And by the time we get to the book, you know, all that stuff just kind of narrows down. So I don't know if it's a good system, but it seems to work for me. Okay. It's, it's been working for me to an extent. It's the, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like there's so much, waste, there's so much waste of time in reorganizing it every once in a while. Yeah. That I, I, I could. We're members <laughs> of the same tribe. That's, that's what I'm getting from this. <laughs> okay. what's your favorite type of writing uh, fiction I, fantasy yeah i i love writing fiction specifically i love fantasy um absolutely my favorite the uh the first books i ever wrote were a trilogy of fantasy novels uh we're actually doing a re-release fairly soon on those called the starfall trilogy and um we've got uh gosh there's another an urban fantasy book that i wrote called the weathermen that'll be coming out in about a year and um I'm also working on a new fantasy trilogy. So that's not the only kind of novel that I write, but 
it's absolutely my favorite. I like the idea of sort of making up the rules and really starting from scratch and asking yourself, how does this world work? I love that. Uh, you say we, who's we? You have uh, partners in, in these novels that you're writing or? No, I'm just inarticulate and uh, use the royal we far too often. <laughs> no, uh, you know, my wife helps me out a lot with uh, a lot of the marketing and, and uh, design process. And of course, you know, we've got some great people over at the publisher helping out. So as far as the actual writing process is concerned, it's, it's pretty much me. But uh, after that, you know, the, the number of people involved keeps growing. Got you. How is, uh, has having kids affected your ability to find that creative spark or, or the time or the energy he sleeps so that's a big plus yeah. i guess that doesn't hire you out uh, but i th i think the biggest change is working at home is a literal impossibility <laughs> you know in the old days before children hey maybe i don't have to leave the house today i can get my stuff done here that is just not the case ever anymore but um you know on the positive side i think you get a lot of inspiration as as i'm sure you're aware out of being a father and uh it gives you a different perspective on the world and and that certainly helps the work, I think, kind of knowing who you're doing it for, in a sense, and having a different perspective uh, on the world. You know, money becomes more important. I know that was one, one thing that got me once I had kids was just the financial responsibility for, for raising them. Yeah, so. yeah. You know, and, and it's funny because I think sometimes people think that that can sound uh, jaded in one sense because nobody likes to talk about money. But the opposite is sort of true because as an artist, it's so easy to be insular and frankly, kind of narcissistic, right? Um, we talk about writing for yourself. Well, why would you write for yourself, right? I mean, the, the very form of the media implies that you kind of hope someone else will read this thing. So the nice thing about feeling the pressure of, of having to market something is, you know, this thing that you've labored over and, and you hope is significant and might touch people, you actually have a fire under you to push it out into the world. You know, and I think it's part of the, uh, the natural process that's actually a, a healthy and a good thing, you know. Yeah, no, that's very true. I, I guess I want to move along to your wrestling, because that is your second scene and really why okay. we have you here today. Absolutely. Um, where did, when, when did you start wrestling? Was it something you had done as in your early childhood? You know, when I was a little kid, I loved to wrestle all my friends. It was my favorite thing, always bugging people to do it. And uh, I actually always wanted to go and join a wrestling team when I was a kid, but the other kids made fun of me. And unfortunately I dropped it uh, until high school. So I didn't, I was a late bloomer. I didn't start wrestling until high school. Um, that was the first time for me. Okay. That's a, it's a lesson learned there. Uh, kids are making funny and you stopped doing it because you, I guess, I know. embarrassed and didn't realize it was something you'd naturally have. What's wrong with me, you know, but uh, thankfully <laughs> hit the ground running once I did start. And, uh, you know, ever since, ever since then, you know, since about 14 years old or so, it's been a part of my life. Um, once you get out of high school and college, you know, there really isn't a whole lot of competitive wrestling available unless you're making a serious run at the Olympics or something. Uh, you know, it's not like going down to the tennis club, right? Um, however, there are a lot of really great coaching opportunities. And that's something that, uh, you know, ever since I stopped competing, I started coaching. And I've been doing that for a long time now. And it's, uh, it's been really neat. What's your favorite age group to, to coach? Oh, man. I know this is a cop-out, but I love them for different reasons. Um, I think it's, uh, it's really fun to 
coach high schoolers because they're so driven and you can teach them kind of some more uh, advanced technique, right? And really help them come into their style because with younger kids, you aren't, you aren't shaping a particular wrestler. You're, you're forming the basic material, right? You're teaching them what a wrestler is. You're teaching them what wrestling is. But by the time you get somebody who's in their teens, you're helping them become an individual uh, insofar as their style and, and uh, their wrestling game is concerned. And that's pretty fun. But, uh, you know, it's a lot of fun coaching uh, grade school kids. I've done some of that as well because, you know, it's like anything with kids. Uh, it sort of reignites. It reminds you of the, the joy of the, the basic discovery of the thing. It reminds you why you love to wrestle. And, you know, you get to join in all those little triumphs of, uh, you know, them learning how to do things for the first time. And that's a lot of fun. The, uh, the younger kids, that reminds me, my son, who's 10, has a new soccer coach. And he had a whole speech to parents last week saying, I'm going to play them at all the different positions. Like, this is the age that they need to try it all. They're not going to be individually good at any one yeah. position, or they're not going to individually focused on any one position. They can be better at one, of course. But uh, it sounds, it's, very, it's very similar. Yeah, that's great. You know, not a lot of coaches will do that. So that's, that's a good thing. So right now you're an assistant coach at USC? Or was no, that was, uh, that was a few years ago. Um, gosh, I was doing that from like 2012 to 2015 maybe, uh, whereas the head assistant coach up there and, you know, driving around and flying around for tournaments, uh, that was a lot of fun. Also at that same time, I was coaching for Beat the Streets LA, doing youth wrestling stuff. Uh, these days I'm down here in San Diego and uh, I coach at East County Wrestling. Um, which is in the off season, it's, uh, you know, mostly high schoolers. We do Greco and, and freestyle tournaments. And, uh, during the season, we mostly have junior hires and some youth wrestlers and, you know, we're, we're teaching them how to wrestle. So it's a year round thing, but our, our crowd kind of changes. I guess I should go back because I'm, I'm not even familiar with the different types of wrestling there is. So sure. There's rubbing. Like I, I, Roman, I don't, I, I wouldn't even know where to start. Yeah, <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, there are uh, innumerable types of wrestling. Uh, basically, every culture has its own particular hallmark, which is pretty neat. Um, however, in America, we have a particular tradition called folk style, uh, also called collegiate wrestling. And that's what everybody comes up doing in high school and, you know, in the NCAAs and in college. And basically, uh, the way we Americans like to wrestle is the point system rewards you for putting someone towards their back and you get rewards for moving away from your back uh, because you pin someone, you win, right? Uh, you hold someone on your back, you win. Uh, so that is not an internationally recognized style. Uh, that's really just here in the U.S. and a little bit in Canada, but not so much. Um, most of the world, uh, at least in international competition, international wrestling is made up of freestyle and folk, freestyle and Greco-Roman and Greco-Roman. Uh, you're not allowed to touch your opponent's legs, which is a pretty big departure from other styles. It's all upper body. It's all throwing. Uh, so it's very, very much, uh, you know, an upright sort of wrestling, very explosive. Um, a lot of, a lot of hand fighting and throws. And then uh, you have freestyle where you are allowed to attack your opponent's legs. And that really emphasizes the explosive power of the wrestler. Uh, the point system really rewards you for demonstrating a mastery of manipulating your opponent. So you get points for things like, you know, uh, if you can make your opponent's feet go over their head, 
uh, as you throw them. You get a lot of points. If you can make your opponent roll, right, you can force them to roll, uh, then you get points, things like that. And of course, if you pin them, you still win. But there are uh, just different rules and, and different rewards in those systems. Okay. If I, I'm, I'm trying to follow if you, so if you pin them, you win. How do the points come into play if you've already won by pinning them? Or do the points well, not matter at that point? It's pretty hard to pin a good wrestler. <laughs> so uh, it's, uh, it's think about chess, right? If you, if you checkmate your opponent, you win. However, if grandmasters play each other five times, how many checkmates are you going to get, right? Um, some, but not all of them, you know. And uh, you can't end in a tie with a wrestling match. We don't have any stalemates. So uh, you have a point system to show who dominated and who did the best in the match. And you can win by points. And most of the time, that's how a match is decided. Okay. I got you. Uh, I, I know I had a couple of stories I wanted to ask you about. Um, sure. Uh, why is it harder to teach a, a second year student than a first year? <laughs> this is something we always laugh about. I think it applies to a lot of disciplines. Uh, in wrestling, we have this kind of tongue in cheek saying, we say, uh, first year wrestler, a novice, second year, a coach. <laughs> and the idea is, you know, second year wrestlers are terrible to coach because, you know, they got beat up a little bit the year before they learned a lot and they just think that they're experts now and they try to instruct and boss around, you know, the new crop of first years and they still just have no idea what they're talking about. Um, but uh, that's one of the things I love about wrestling. It really humbles you. One of the cool things about, you know, coaching is you get to walk alongside kids and learning that very valuable life lesson of, of being teachable and humble. And uh, second-year wrestlers are usually the ones who need it the most. <laughs> I feel like that's almost in every job. I feel like even employees yeah. I work with, you know, the third week there, they're like, <laughs> Oh my God, I know all these shortcuts to get that stuff done. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. And it's the worst because, you know, they're not even keeping it to themselves. They try to take the, the guy who's been there a year less than them under their arm and say, listen, I'm going to tell you how things are. <laughs> yeah. You know, meanwhile, your coach has been wrestling for 35 years. The other kids in the room have been wrestling since they're four, you know. Um, gosh, I remember when I was in high school, we had this kid. Uh, I don't remember his last name. I probably shouldn't say it even if I remember, but his name was, his first name was Dylan, I think. And, uh, he was one of those guys. He had a tiny bit of experience, was not very good, but he just knew that his way was right. Uh, regardless of how the matches turned out. And so he had this very hunchback stance, kind of looked like the hunchback in Notre Dame. Uh, he didn't have any sort of disability. He could stand upright. He just wouldn't. And, uh, he would hold his hands out like this, sort of like he's casting a spell on you way too far out in front of his body uh looked like a caricature of himself and you know us older guys would would try to always say hey you know there are better ways but he he just knew better and he was going to teach all the little ones so <laughs> you run into that sometimes that's funny i i, I know people like that and again, the other, the other <laughs> yeah see but that's oh, the yeah. great thing about wrestling is uh you get irritated with someone like that and you throw them over your head you know can't uh, can't do that yeah. in the office. <laughs> no, we should really implement that into like all aspects of life. Can I? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's let's take out the hardwood floors, put in some mats. It'll be great. Exactly. We're gonna work on this together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You and me. So, um, as far as teaching kids in LA not to shout their own names in triumph, I mean, I like to shout <laughs> my name after I do something. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. Man, I uh, I loved coaching for Beat the Streets Los Angeles up there. I coached for them for a number of years, actually right around the time they started the uh, the pilot programs up there. And uh, I had a bunch of great kids. There was one kid in particular who uh, had so much talent and, and just absorbed everything that I taught him like that. And, um, you know, he had to learn the humility lesson too. Uh, we were at a, uh, a tournament one time. And uh, it was kind of a difficult match, I guess. And he ended up uh, reversing his opponent and pinning them, you know, before time ran out. And uh, as he finished, you know, ref blows the whistle. He jumps up and bears his chest to the world and screams his own name, <laughs> just his name. And I had to take him aside and say, hey, uh, I love you, but that was really, really stupid. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you have a talk about being a good sport and, and humility and all that. But, uh, you know, you're going to learn those lessons somewhere. And that's the nice thing about wrestling is uh, you can learn there. You can learn them as a kid. Don't shout your own name into the void. Let, uh, let other people do that for you, maybe. That, that's, that's hilarious. hilarious. But, uh, oh, gosh. It was so you're allowed fun. to do those things as a kid. That's when you're supposed to learn and do those things. You know? <laughs> it's like, well, you're in junior high. You should probably stop. <laughs> but, yeah, it's a, a good laboratory for learning and making mistakes for sure. Yeah. My, my son, uh, takes, uh, Taekwondo. So oh yeah. Great. Relate to, yeah. It's, it was, he's a black belt now. He's 10 mm -hmm. and it was a lot more dangerous when he was back, uh, sparring with the white belts. I think his, his fourth time there, uh, teacher came over, uh, said no kicking or punching to the face. And what do you think happened? Uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah, you know, teeth, in, uh, uh, oh man, losing yeah. teeth, huh? Yeah, oh, yeah. Brutal. Somebody, one of the white belts, kicked in the face. Yeah, but I'm sure yeah. you can relate to that. Oh my gosh, absolutely. Yeah, in in wrestling, you know, with novices, and also, you know, uh, training Brazilian jiu-jitsu is a big part of my life, and uh, it's the same thing. In in that discipline, we always say the white belts are the only ones who hurt you. We call them baby snakes because they have no control, and. Uh, you know, somebody more experienced is going with them, trying to teach them, and <laughs> they're spasming, you know. It's like, okay. My eight-year-old's been asking for jujitsu, and he's got, mm -hmm. like, the tightest grip. He'll grab yeah. onto my leg or arm or wrestle, and I can't peel him off. Uh, I guess jujitsu is definitely more it's, – it's closer to wrestling than something like taekwondo, correct? Yeah. Uh, it is in the sense that it's grappling, right, uh, as opposed to, like, a striking art. Uh, the difference would be that uh, jujitsu is primarily a martial art as opposed to a sport, whereas wrestling is primarily a sport. Um, but there is some bleed over, right? So knowing how to wrestle is going to help you in a fight. Um, a lot of modern MMA, well, pretty much all modern MMA fighters, you know, study some form of wrestling. Uh, and same with Brazilian jujitsu. It's, it's uh, primarily a martial art, but also there's tournaments, there's point systems. You can go and compete. You know, but uh, yeah, it's it's a really neat thing to do. It's a great art. Okay, what age would be appropriate to start to start someone? Uh, eight is certainly fine. Uh, my son is coming up at three, and when he turns three, we're gonna see if he's ready. Um, I'm already teaching him. Uh, they have Gracie games. I'm teaching him little principles of wrestling. Just when he wrestles around with me, you know, you turn it into a game for kids, and. Um, a lot of it just really depends on how good the programs where you live are, because obviously, you know, with coaching of any kind, uh, especially with kids, it depends on uh, the age that you're coaching radically changes how you teach. 
So for little kids, they're not teaching them how to do arm bars. You know, they're not going to be breaking bones. They're teaching them about position. And most of training has been turned into games to uh, sort of shape their, their reflexes and, and their responses to things. Um, but yeah, eight, eight is a great age to do it. Uh, I would say if, uh, if you guys are so inclined, some people start as early as three, that's on the extreme end, but, uh, it, it's just training looks different. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, hopefully we'll get past COVID so I can get him into a gym because uh, yeah. he's definitely asking for it. Um, so I, I'd like to, one last thing I'd like to talk about is, uh, your book. So you have a book that's coming out in, when is it coming out? I know you can pre-order it now. Uh, yeah. So if we're talking about for whom the sun sings, it actually came out a couple of months ago. The, uh, the press gets a little out of date, I think. Well, I'm, I'm bad at the internet, um, <laughs> I guess, but, uh, yeah, it came out in March and, uh, that's been really neat. It was a uh, number one new release on Amazon for about a month and, uh, people really seem to enjoy it and share it. Um, the premise is the entire world is blind. No one has even ever heard of sight. No one has a concept for it. No vocabulary. It's not a thing. And there's a boy named Andreas who is born inexplicably with the ability to see. And so the book uh, follows him from the time he's about 11 to the time he's about 13. And it's that moment where you are kind of coming to uh, be able to think abstractly about the world and see yourself. And it's his, uh, his story of growing up and radically upending the uh, very strict and severe society that he lives in. So it's, uh, it's a neat read. People seem to be connecting with it. I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. How, how long was, was this work in progress for you? Oh my gosh. Uh, you know, it's funny. I started writing it in 2015, I think. And I was so excited about the idea. I loved the concept. I told myself, Wes, you're going to write a rough draft in a month. 30 days, you're going to have a rough draft of this novel, for sure. Took me a year. Took me an entire year to write the rough draft. Uh, and from there, it was a lot of revising and editing and all that. But uh, I actually set it on the shelf for a few years. I didn't send it out to any agencies at all uh, until uh, about two years ago. And uh, first agent that we sent it to loved it. And uh, it got picked up right away. So technically, it's about five years in the making, which is uh, a little crazy. Oh, wow. Yeah. I can't imagine how many times you rewrote things. Cause even when I do an email, if I put the email on the side and I come back to it, I'll rewrite that one paragraph yeah. email 20 times. Well, you know, writing is such a, a clash of opposites. I mean, there's so many paradoxes involved in, in being a proficient writer. And so for me, uh, I actually write all my novels longhand, just pen and paper so that while I'm in that creative process, I can't really revise. Um, I, I, compartmentalize and I say revising is for later. Uh, so I get my draft down and then once we get into editing, I'm, I'm all editing. So that's, that's how I cope with that, uh, which is a little extreme and a little crazy because it takes some time, but uh, works for me. That's great. We all have to find our ways. Oh yeah. Mind using 20 different electronic notebooks, different places. And then trying to yeah, yeah. Or everything. Yep. I relate. <laughs> I like to think that the search teaches us something maybe. <laughs> searching for information I'll, I'll come across other things that i wrote that i completely forgot that i wrote down so that yeah. that, that is something so, it's like finding that 20 was bucks a great idea <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah 
This has been Second Scene with Michael. I want to thank you for sharing your stories, Wesley. Uh, check out W.A. Fulkerson at W-A-F-U-L-K-E-R-S-O-N.com. And you can actually order the book there, even though it says pre-order. It'll take you to the Amazon and you can order it. Um, it's called For Who the Sun Sings Now, correct? For Whom the Sun Sings Yeah, For Whom now. the Sun Sings, yeah. For Whom the Sun Sings Now. And if you want more no-nonsense advice or free one-on-one -on -one mentorship in an area from resume writing to mental health, send us a contact request at dweebsglobal.org and we will pair you with a mentor. Uh, tune in next Tuesday for another episode of Second Scene with me, NC.